My name is Tom Stern, and I'm the author of the novels My Vanishing Twin and Sutterfeld, You're Not a Hero, both out from Rare Bird Books. And um, in conversation today with John Andrew Frederick, um, who wrote the book Fucking Innocent, the early films of Wes Anderson, which is a fascinating book that I can't wait to get into, but also the author of, is it four novels, John? I think so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> last time you counted <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not, uh, I'm not that good at math so i started writing instead well good that's fortunate for us then and right. your next book though is a treatise on calculus right yeah sure i don't see why not yeah. <laughs> no i awesome. see many reasons why not sure well i uh just to kind of get us going here um i i think there are a lot of interesting overlaps between aspects of our, our two books um, Wes Anderson to me is, is a fascinating figure for a variety of reasons that we could go on and on about. Um, but, um, you know, one of the places where I see kind of the most overlap with, I think my work is kind of wrestling with this idea of style and tone and voice and how those things contribute to, to narrativity. Um, are those things that you were thinking about with Wes Anderson, or did you kind of come at that come at his work from a totally different point of view? Um, I would say that I I looked at I did sort of like an exegesis of each film, uh, in trying to talk about the those kind of again you know prototypical graduate student ish form versus content um, sort of issues. And then I, I saw a thread through the first three films, which I have been careful to note that they're the only ones that I really um, embrace or endorse. Not that my endorsement means anything at all, but um, they're the films that I, the, the only films really by, by Anderson that I like, um, in, in part because I, I've, I saw so much um, in them and uh, that, have, that has to do with the narrative threads that uh, almost you know treating them like a trilogy of sorts and like an unwitting trilogy somehow mm -hmm. so i don't know if that answers your question necessarily but let me fire one let me fire one back at you about yeah, you yeah. Know, um my vanishing twin which i have right here my annotated version of um <laughs> can you talk can you talk again this is a, a stylistic um question in in, in terms of Know, or more of a thematic question, you know, the, the notion of twins and doubles is one that's, you know, historically um, through the, both the English and American novel, you, you have to think of Dostoevsky or Melville or my one of my serious heroes, Nabokov. Now, know, knowing that going into it, that the double notion had is something that, like a territory that had been mined, I was thinking the way that you did it makes us realize that that sort of approach is still okay as long as the original character who's being doubled as it were is is original is really you know quite original it doesn't matter that there's you know we're seeing this theme of meeting the quote unquote other and i wondered why you were writing the book first of all i also had an, a question about the you know um about the, the the beginning versus the ending and i'm always you know because i'm a literary person who loves film and, I, and because I teach, I often ask the students to compare the beginning of something with the end. So if you can just answer the first, the first question, you know, were you uh, uh, fully aware of the richness of that, of that doubling theme? And, and I would, I'm just trying to tell you in some ways, I think you really justified you know, uh, us meeting up with that, 
that sort of theme yet again in 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 literature. Yeah, th thank you. Yeah, I, I definitely, um, I definitely was aware of that as sort of um, you know a, a, as a a trope almost or something. Sure. That's, Good word right, for you it. Know? Yeah. Um, and and I think that so my usually when I'm approaching a, a project. I mean, I, I write every day and then things start to kind of coalesce into certain directions and then I kind of pursue those directions and usually the directions that I wind up really kind of digging into so deeply that you can be crazy enough to spend years of your life working it into it until it becomes a full um, realized novel okay. um, are, the, are these areas that have. Um, really difficult questions, things that are unknown to me or unclear to me. And so as I was working through the pages um, that that wound up being the beginning of My Vanishing Twin, it was really sort of character-based pages between Walter, the protagonist, and Veronica, his, his girlfriend, and they were sort of at, at a middling point or kind of an end point almost to their relationship where they they'd kind of, um, everything had flattened out. And it was becoming clear to me that Walter as a character had sort of compromised his way to a point of stasis in his life. And this, and I started kind of asking the question of well, what would it take to jar him out of this? Like what would it take to move, actually move his story and his life forward in an unexpected direction? And for whatever reason, at some point, this idea kind of just showed up in my head um, that he would be pregnant with his own twin brother and that his twin brother would be born and obsessed with getting his MBA. And what, let, me, let me ask one, one question yeah. in the midst of this before I lose this thread. Yeah. Um, the, the obvious and obligatory question, was this born out of a quasi-autobiographical feeling on your own part that you needed to get something needed to stimulate you from to get out of a static situation in your own existence? Um, only that's in not as too personal. No, no, not at all. I would say only in as much as I think um, I have a sort of a, a personal obsession with the idea of sort of coming into knowledge of, of kind of the epistemology of being. Sure. And, and I do think that this is kind of a right. It, it's 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 po taking poetic license with certain things, but it's sort of a fanciful way of playing with those questions of what does it mean to come to know yourself and what does it mean to work through a journey to try to come to a point of um, understanding or comprehension regarding who you are. And so, I, I, it, but beyond that, I don't think it was very literal. And I, do, I don't think I identify that deeply with Walter as a character. I think I identify with aspects of him. I think you would see pieces of that in my personality, sure. but not to that extreme that mm -hmm. he sort of operates under. Um, and so, so as I kind of stumbled upon this idea of him being pregnant with his twin brother, I, I then spent probably a good month trying to convince myself that only a fucking crazy person would actually write a book about that. And as or I, David Cronenberg would make a film of it, you know, <laughs> I'm going to guess that you're a Cronenberg guy. You know, I, I know his work. Yeah, I know his work. I'm familiar with it. I've never necessarily been the deepest fan of his. Not that I dislike his work. I've just it's never really caught for me. But uh, that's not the first time I've I've heard the Cronenberg thing thrown my way um, from people who've read My Vanishing Twin. Sure. Um, and so yeah. So as I um, 
you know, as I worked through those pages further and further, it just became more and more apparent to me that this is indeed what the book is about. And that is indeed what, you know, the direction that I need to go in to, to kind of explore it. And, um, and I think the, the, the central metaphor or kind of unwieldy metaphor of the doppelganger, not doppelganger, but the twin, um, it was a matter of kind of unpacking it, unpacking it, unpacking it to try to figure out. I mean, on a cursory level, I understood, you know, that there's this person who thinks that, you know, who's compromised all of these things. And he gives birth to this person who's basically limitlessly capable at whatever it is that he sets his mind to doing from social, emotional engagement with others to ambitions to all of this. And I got that there was a polarity to it. But I think for me, the book was a process of mining that relationship to ultimately try to figure out what that bond was between them and, and what they were trying to understand or pursue. Well, uh, that kind of hints at the uh, the whole notion of some, of an idealized other. You know, you bring in the doppelganger notion, but you know that's characteristically thought of in German folklore as this you know evil twin, or someone you see that you'll mm -hmm. you'll die. But it's almost as though like there's this vicarious living through. You know, like what if we did have a double or a twin who is capable of all of the things that we've only ostensibly fantasized about? Is what it seems to me that you're touching upon. Yeah, I think so. And I think there's something also in there about the notion of agency, the sort of desire for individuals to feel like they have some sort of say in shaping their lives. Right. Um, and, and back to the, you know, back to like a crisis moment, you're talking about, you know, epistemology or self-knowledge, you know, uh, where um, where uh, the, con con the confronting of that self would really throw yourself back on you know like great questionings of your own being accomplishments potentialities yeah. etc so i think you know that's a really interesting theme that not just whether it's quasi or at all autobiographical doesn't matter because i think a lot of us get to a certain edge and stage in life and you might just go like wow what if you know try, try to imagine a whole other not just life but a whole other other yeah. And I think I think that the music that the, the idea of music for Walter and his pursuit of music kind of plays that role of giving him an outlet or a direction to kind of um, pursue finding some of that agency, finding some of that direction. Um, and he kind of winds up relating to it in a very almost unexpected way. You, you, you know, there are certain categories we assign to the notion of ambition in music that dance around ideas of fame and fortune and all that and he yeah. kind of really discovers that it's not about that to him it's about having this sort of avenue for doing something that he finds meaning in and part of that is saying fuck other people and whatever they make of this this is what it's going to mean to me that sounds apt now have you <laughs> written because you're a filmmaker as well yeah. as i understand have you have you written a script for this do did you did you write it thinking that you would turn it, your own book into a script and or do you have plans to try to to try to film it because it seems like it would be a, you know a pot potentially a cool film i don't i i've never really stopped to think about it um I did. I, yeah, I did uh, make a couple of feature films, indie feature films that played some festivals in the U.S. and Europe and got some small distribution deals. And um, what I found was with each of those films, um, you know, it would take a good three to four years out of my life to make those films. And yeah. 
when I was done with them, I was just wasted. I mean, it, it just really was a depleting process. There were elements of it that were really invigorating, but the overall thing was such a, a, a marathon and, and really depleting. So when I finished my second feature film, I said, you know, I'll get back to this when I really have the impulse and the desire to do it again, that singular drive. Okay. And have since really been focusing more on, on writing novels. And that has been a much more replenishing process, exhausting in its own right too, but much sure. more replenishing. So I, I kind of haven't even gone back to thinking about it as a film. And do you reckon that because you're the auteur for both of those films, it seems, right? Writer, director. Yeah. So yeah. That we can tar you with the brush of auteur. It's a uh -huh. nice brush to be. But from experience, you're saying that that's just overwhelming and exhausting and you would be you, you could your time would be better spent and less depletingly spent writing rather than trying to get another film together i think just because of who i am not as a generalization but i think that there are enough parts of what the actual boots on the ground reality of that process of filmmaking is that are so depleting whereas you know working with actors working on the script pre-production and aspects of onset production are replenishing to me, but you know, the kind of grind of, of staying with the story as long as you have to and getting through all those edits and revisions and the sound design and the color correction and the, you know, and, and acquiring investors and, you know, festivals and all that, all those things became such a, um, I just wanted to be working on the creative stuff that I liked more. And so I think just for me, yeah, it, you know, I, I still do think I will wake up one day, uh, just like I woke up with an idea about a pregnant guy pregnant with his brother sure. and, uh, and be like, all right, here's the next movie. But, uh, so far writing has been much, much better bedfellow for me. Sounds as though you could become an, an anti-inspirational speaker at, um, you know, the first day of, I've, I have a couple friends who went to the, went to SC film school and they said that the, the first day the a prof or a guest speaker came in and uh, you know essentially told told the kids and not kids like one well, only only maybe one out of 25 of you will ever even be on a film set you know like good luck in your <laughs> MFA or whatever just to think uh, all these pie in the sky auteurs men K that are out there right you know people going oh my god I'm so inspired by Whit Stillman or Cronenberg or you know or yeah. Wes Anderson, I want to make films too. That you you could you might be able to make a couple of pence for yourself going around discouraging people just by telling 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 it like it is. Well, and it's funny. I, I guess I you know I think of it similarly to again Walter and the music um, is you know I know I, so I, I work at Art Center College of Design and I talk to a lot of film students there, um, and there are some who are you know. This that is their jam. Like that, the, sure. the process yeah. itself is that replenishing thing. And so, to me, I think it's more. You know, I guess it brings us back to self knowledge, and it's just coming into an awareness of like. I, I I think it's a really fascinating question of what is creativity, what is the compulsion or the desire or the drive to create, and then what are these different manifestations of it, at, that make some of them more apropos and fitting for an individual than others. It's truly baffling when you try to start to, to stop and drill down and even understand it. And it, at a certain point, I feel like you just got to jump in and start making things and see what the heck they 
wind up being and, and fail gracefully along the way 99% of the time. Um, so it's interesting. But these film students, though, bring me back to so to Wes Anderson, because here is one of the things that I have observed in recent years that I am completely confounded by and I need your guidance on. All right. So I'll do what I can, Tom. Thank you. <laughs> so there I'll do is, what damage I can. <laughs> there is a entire an entire generation of filmmakers who are burgeoning filmmakers, I should say, who are right now probably in their early 20s, um, early to mid 20s. And they are citing Wes Anderson as this one of the one of the top influences on their desires to make films. And when you start talking with them, you realize that the film that introduced them to Wes Anderson was Moonrise Kingdom or maybe the Grand Budapest Hotel, and that they actually oftentimes haven't even seen or heard of Bottle Rocket, Rushmore, Royal Tenenbaums. And I find this interesting because to me, Bottle Rocket is Wes Anderson's best film. Royal Tenenbaums, I think I would put as my second. And it, Rushmore is, is in that vicinity too, but that is a point in the filmmaking where in my opinion, Wes Anderson was still fighting this tension or this balance between style and sort of heart or content or character or kind of the messiness of storytelling and life and character and people. And Moonrise Kingdom for me, even though I respect the film, but when I saw the film, that was the first point at which I saw a, one of Wes Anderson's films and I had seen them all at that point where I said, that film to me feels like it is a parody of a Wes Anderson film because it is so stylized, Precisely. such an I extreme. And what's interesting to me, what the question I can't get at is, what is it that, I mean, so many burgeoning filmmakers, what is it that they're responding to in that film as their introduction to Wes Anderson um, that is so resonant to them, especially- Do you want me to start casting aspersions on millennials? Is that what you're eliciting here? Because <laughs> I'm happy to do that. Sorry, millennials <laughs> who are listening in, but I, Dr. Frederick has a dose of reality for you. First of all, you tell that, you, you know, you, you want to, uh, I, I mean, were I in your shoes there, I'd say, okay, that's great. Now go look at the first three film, films by Anderson and understand if you can't understand the difference between them, it's sort of like, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. Um, mm -hmm. But I agree, I agree wholeheartedly that the first three are the best. I mean, I would say that, the you know, oh, what a great falling off, you know, it was, uh, you know, it was here, um, would, would have to start with the life aquatic, which I've described as mm -hmm. just a bunch of people, you know, um, gleefully running around in red hats. That's, mm -hmm. the, that's the gist of the film. I mean, I think that's where... I mean, uh, if you want to get really super dark about it, Tom, I would start to say that success is the ruination of many an artist, and that's mm. writ large for me in Anderson's career. He made loads of money, became quite famous on, on a bunch of magazine covers, et cetera, et cetera. He has these, these ki not kids and not kids adulating him up the waz, and here he goes um, making these hyper-stylistic, heavy pictures that are indeed, as you noted, seemingly parodies of his own work. I mean, I started off my book with the Jean Renoir quote that, if, if, and maybe as a filmmaker you'll corroborate this, that 
um, you know, uh, a, a filmmaker one makes makes one film in his life, and then he kind of cuts it into little pieces, and he makes it all again. Mm-hmm. I mean, all all of us have our motifs, our themes, our e-day fixes, etc. Right? That mm-hmm. that we're going to be, you know, you, you, it's like the Samuel Beckett quote, you know, I am what I am in part, at least. Um, you know, so so. Um, you know, he's and people are seem to me to be always relentlessly themselves, no matter how much how much they think they change, etc. Um, they really, you know, the core of them is ostensibly still there. So I, I would say to the students, look, you know, here's a fascinating artist in a way, in the sense that he kind of bought his own myth somehow. Um, that his, you know, it's sort of like his beloved Beatles and my beloved Beatles too. And by the time they get to let it be, they're they're almost like a Beatles cover band going through the motions of things. And they could have done anything with that record, played on, you know, every roof in in all of London Town, and people would have flipped out. And so when I when I see people go a drooling over the later films. I just I'm very dismayed and it makes me sad for the public that hasn't been. That's one of the reasons why I wrote the book, you know, seemingly to educate people to go. These are really, really solid films from a literary perspective. Now, the screenplays and the characters are very fascinating, very deep. Uh, They get us to question those things because, you know, you will have noted that I kind of made these sub uh, categories for each of the mm-hmm. chapters that you know, that the Royal Tenenbaums is is about the the idea of being who mm-hmm. are we meant to be who who have we become you know uh, Rushmore deals with the the motif of friendship which you know I think is way more important than ro- romance for me personally I always look to be friends with somebody and prize that you know before a romantic uh, thing uh, ensues and that bottle rocket is a film is a really self-reflexive film about the movies and how the movies can damage us you know like holden caulfield uh, if you recall in you know catcher in the rise always railing about the goddamn movies and how they'll ruin you and this right. again this idealized version of, of of how things aren't really you know really real and dignan and Anthony find out that the that all of the gangster pictures that they that the that, that their their fantasy um, and their story you know from a self-reflexive literary way have been predicated upon are are balderdash you know and I think I Wes Wes Anderson if he Wes if you're listening to this go back to making your, the film the kind of films that you made at the at the outset if you're going to continue because you really you really are um, a, a seemingly parody and pale shadow of what you were before when the, where the, when the scripts were super rich and detailed. And if you read my book available from rare birds, you know, like right now you'll, you'll, you'll see that those, those pictures were, were really, really, you know, brilliant classic up the, up there with any, for me, any Hitchcock or Renoir or, um, or David Lynch too, you know, in a much different way. So and is that so you you've got the quote from democritus at the beginning of the book too the brave man is he who overcomes not only his enemies but his pleasures is that quote kind of keying into aspects of what it utterly dovetails dovetails tom into into that notion you know i mean i don't know i don't know how much how, how much success you'd like to meet with as a novelist or a filmmaker but um i think that the wise the wise and perspicacious person or artist is a little bit leery of success and how it can go. It's not that I want to keep on failing. I mean, my band has made 15 records to very, very 
small commercial success and lots of critical acclaim and you know that's that's a different kind of question but i don't know i think lots of times writers and filmmakers once they hit the big time and they're on everybody's lips and they're on you know they're on the cover of entertainment tonight and written about in vanity fair and they can go live in paris that they lose touch with what made them that drive like you were talking about in relation to creativity of what what motivated them to try to make something that was really really piercingly interesting and relevant and wasn't you know trading on a kind of style that i mean anderson could go and right now it seems he could go and 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 create and create a a film that wasn't even by him many of his you know pale idolaters could go in like a Stephen King novel. They say that Stephen King novels are written sometimes by committee, you know, like a bunch of people who know Stephen King really well could imitate him to the point where they just churn these things out. Have you ever heard that before? Uh, not about him, but about, I've heard it about other authors. Yeah. Um, what's well, the, what uh, my books are all like that too. I have these little, you know, John clones that, you know, go <laughs> doubling down the land and just over, overwrite prose and use a bunch of big words pretentiously. Cause that's me. Um, so yeah, so I've started that, that war, that quasi war factory for myself. So I suggest you get on the, get on the bandwagon here, kid. But anyway, anyway, so, you know, I I don't know. I just, it seems as though, you know, that, that he might be content with that. And it just might be just, you know, that, that sort of fat and happy kind of motif and not literally fat because he's a skinny kid. Um, You know, just that he's, he's complacent, you know, and I, I don't think he is. I don't think the first three films are complacent at all. I think they're really questing and questioning like, like Matt and therefore they're, they're really relevant and wonderful works of art. And that's why I wrote fucking innocent the early films of wes anderson ta-da there's the end of my spiel there you, there go. you go no it's a good thing okay well let me segue into it because i think that part of these themes that that you're talking about they're interesting i don't know that the, that i had sort of predicated or thought through the success piece of it yet and how it does or doesn't affect things but as you were talking i was thinking um is that the fate of any artist ultimately to reach a point where you know, the, the the act of the making isn't also connected to some sort of vitality that's still asking questions, that's still exploring. But then also, as you were talking, I was thinking about um, Walter and the, the, the strand of the narrative in My Vanishing Twin, where he sort of pursues this music career and, and sort of comes into this question of success where he's, he's kind of happy just performing his music to no one and, and he has no musical talent no musical gifts and he's performing on a street corner um and when wallace his brilliant twin kind of catches wind of it he starts to kind of build walter into um a brand build walter into um sort of a sustainable and economically sustainable model for um capitalizing on his performances and there, it, it's just sort of a, an interesting dynamic that goes back and forth um and I think starts to, you know, ask some of the questions that that you're talking about as well. Um, so, anyways, I just re- reflect that back at you. I, I, I just was sort of seeing that in some of the things you were talking about. Well, I mean, what you're bringing up is the notion of art versus commerce, and I'm going to refer once again to um, Holden Caulfield, whom I just got over just two years ago. That I realized I wasn't going to turn myself into Holden Caulfield; that it wasn't going to happen. <laughs> fell out of love with him after all these years of reading Catch in the Raw and worshiping Salinger. 
you know, uh -huh. as, as, as any, uh, you know, the, the best of Salinger. But, you know, he, uh, he talks, you know, Holden talks about um, how um, if, he, if he were a piano player, speaking of music, he'd play in a goddamn closet is the quotation. And, you know, that idea of doing art for its own sake, um, you know, irrespective of uh, an audience is something that, you know, of course, those of us who feel like real artists, that we would be doing this if we reached nobody or made no money. And um, I don't want to get everybody all depressed about that notion, but <laughs> something you really do face because so many people are doing it for the wrong, for the, uh, what I would consider as something of a purist a damned purist doing it for the wrong reasons. And, you know, you, you, you bring up this notion of doing it for, for its own sake. And I think that there's something really very, very beautiful about that, that anytime, just like when I ever see somebody play guitar really well and tastefully and not show offily, I think, good for you, kid. You've spent a lot of time alone. You know, mm -hmm. see, you, you see a, a woman playing piano like a mad person with her hair electrified and reaching out to tomorrow. And I think, good for you. You spent a lot of time alone. You did it for its, you know, like uh, for its own sake. So, yeah. you know, that's, I mean, that's just a very, very interesting thing. Now, do you play music yourself? Is this why, or is this a fantasy for you? Are you a triple threat in making films, writing books and playing music as well? No, I, I don't. I love music. And in fact, I think, um, many musicians and songwriters are, are my favorite novelists in some uh -huh. weird way, yeah. but, um, but I don't. And I actually, at different points in my life, um, you know, sort of reached that the, a point where I thought, you know, I'm going to learn how to play. I'm going to learn how to, and I always backed off from that, not out of fear, but because, um, you know, when I went into filmmaking, when you learn how to make the film, it changes it a little bit. It takes and the magic out of it. Is that weird? Uh, it changes the magic. I mean, yeah. I think there's still a magic to it, but it's it's an applied magic, and it's different from what, from from the kind of simplicity of just letting it be what it is for you. And and I think I was always afraid to, not to fail at learning how to play, but to change what my relationship to music is. Um, and so I never never went down that path. Now that said, I might be horrific at it i have no idea but um well blur told us anyone can play guitar tom so you know and blur are these soothsayers of brit pop so you know you might you never know <laughs> who knows you go hide yourself down to guitar center and get yourself an axe and see what happens now are you telling yeah, me hold on are you telling me you said some of your favorite novelists are musicians some of my favorite mus musicians are novelists. Okay. All right. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold on a second here. Now, are you telling me? Are you telling me that you like Pete Townsend's prose? The, no. The, have you read the Horse's Neck book? No. Okay. Who Who are you talking about then? I mean, I, a simple example Leonard of this Cohen? would be. Go ahead. Leonard Cohen. Oh well, sure. I mean, who doesn't love Leonard Cohen? Oh, I um, think. He's I think he's the most overrated guy imaginable. No, I'm kidding. I um, love him too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm just going to say I'm going to have to disagree with you does on that. Steve, does Steven Tyler of, of Aerosmith have a, have a book out uh, that I don't know about? No, no, no. I mean it more as um, the storytelling and in, All right. in a song and the storytelling not just through lyrics but through the layering of sound and the orchestration of sound and the grammar of sound. 
that all of those things to me really key into the layers of prose and the layers of scenes and building scenes and building stories. So, uh, you know, a, a simple example of this that I thought about a lot with my vanishing twin was a, a, a singer songwriter named Jens Lechman, um, who wrote a song, the name. A sim- yeah, a simple song called a higher power. And it's just narratively just beautiful, just remarkable. It's, it's, it's perfectly narrative. He never steps outside of a story to comment upon it, to broadcast what he's doing. And there are these moments that are just so unexpected and unusual, but so universally accessible. And he is able to get at that with an efficiency that will exceed anything that I'll ever be able to accomplish in prose. But yet it inspires me in terms of prose to kind of continue okay. to shape. So you're, you're talking about novelistic songwriters rather than songwriters who've written a, pro- a novel proper. Correct. Yes. Okay. Yeah. All right. Is the next thing you're going to tell me that you think Dylan deserved the Nobel Prize for literature? Uh, no. <laughs> okay. All right. Good. But, Tom, then we can be friends. I love Dylan, but that's a whole different. We can I, I do too. I love Dylan as well. But... We'll always have Skype. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. That, and that's a whole different kettle of um, rotting fish for me. So, like, let's not get into that. Um, but yeah. Okay. All right. So, novelistic songwriters qua inspiration for you then okay that's yeah that's that's very cool and that's interesting that some that somebody who doesn't play music would try to enter in imaginatively into the head of a of a musician you know despite what mummy must have told you never to date musicians like you you let one inside your psyche right yeah no there's that and i don't know if you find this as well being a musician but there's a a primacy to the community to the communication of music that is, um, I, I just don't know anything else like it, where through a series of notes, of sounds, you can immediately conjure an emotion, communicate a feeling, convey an idea, it, it, and it, it, ju- it cuts right through the need for a certain edifice on top of the thing to, to get you into that, that space. Sure, that makes sense. There's yeah. no further questions. All right. <laughs> <laughs> No objections. <laughs> I rest my, I rest my case, and yours is ve- very well made. Cheers. <laughs> um, so, other question on the film side of things: um, sure. Are you a Hal Hartley fan? Oh yeah, of course. I'm, okay. Oh, for, I, on the, I'm on the side of not of the not not quirky, but not quirky for its own sake. The way that we talked about Anderson becoming absolutely yeah. Hal Hartley is like. Oh, if I if I I've often fantasized, and you've helped me kill this fantasy, Tom, about making a film myself, you know, because um, <laughs> I'm such I'm such a film buff, um, mm-hmm. but I'm being disabused of that particular thing in the wake of the fact that I can't find anything to watch, you know, um, contempt any contemporary pictures. I just, I go to the movies or try to watch films. And I'm going uh, can't can't deal with it. But Hal Hartley, you know, hasn't made enough pictures. I don't think. Would love to see yeah. more from him. That's that's kind of what like what we thought about Terrence Malick, until he yeah. just came on, you know, with this this uh, prodigious flood of pictures that you know hardly seem written at all. I mean, I, I don't want to disparage them because I I love the early Terrence Malick too. Um, you know, going back to the theme of people's early work. Hal Hartley for me also was a is was a figure that sort of started the passion for filmmaking and for storytelling in that way. I mean, his his film Trust. 
is still one of my all-time favorite films. And Henry I've Fool. I've seen that. I've seen Henry Fool many times, but I'll, I'll trust you recommend. Yeah, trust is just it's you know it, it, it's similar. It, it, Scope-wise, it's a it's a smaller film, and he's making films at a point where the filmmakers and our and viewers' relationship to the technology is really different. Which there's something I love about that as well that there was kind of a purity in that era of um, of the complexity of making film, where our expectations weren't that everything was going to be um, controlled to its every last pixel and um, you know, everything was going to be, you know, effects driven and whatnot. There was still a purity to it, but it's such a simple, beautiful story. And he used sort of a, in a different way, but in a similar kind of stripe as Wes Anderson used a very stylized approach in terms of speech patterns and the, the back and forth of dialogue and the content of that dialogue and the blocking uh-huh. that that is just, arresting to me I, I think it's remarkable and what's funny though is that i had seen those film that those films trust and his other early films um and i didn't i didn't read it as stylized it seemed naturalistic to me that seemed like there's a cadence to how people speak there's a cadence to how people move and it fit with that and it took me years of trying to find other people that had watched his movies because not that many have but when talking sure, yeah. to them they would say like, oh yeah, yeah, it's so heightened and stylized, but so's Hitchcock and so's Aaron Sorkin. And those for some reason don't trouble people, but Hal Hartley does. And I've never been able to figure out what that distinction was. Um, but yeah, Trust is a beautiful movie. Um, and Henry Fool, Henry Fool, I think is my all time favorite film. I, I go back to it again and again. I think it's a total gem. And that just reminded me that it's been a long time since I've seen it. I've seen it three or four times, I think, and you know, I should get back to it, but I do need it. That was a very eloquent endorsement of, um, of, of the trust. Then I think that Hal Hartley should give us royalties. If any, some more people hear this interview and go see his pictures. <laughs> there you go. Excellent. Yeah, sure. Well, is there anybody what? left that we haven't offended yet that we should? I don't know. Yeah. I'll just let, cue them up and we'll, you know, knock them down. <laughs> I don't, I don't think it's been terribly offensive. No, it's no, been, no, it's been in a sort of a you know a guerrilla investigation of the, you know why 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 continue to do this quixotic venture of making art and because we could have nice you know conversations about this. You're a terribly articulate fellow. I could listen to you for you know how much more time do we have left, Tom? Um, <laughs> no, seriously, we should have a yeah. beer together sometime. It'd be great. Absolutely, that would be phenomenal. Um, but let's we'll we'll wrap this up for today, and then yeah. we'll continue talking again soon. Because yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thanks um, a lot, Tom Stern. Yeah, absolutely. So John Andrew Frederick's book is fucking innocent. The early films of Wes Anderson. It is awesome. It is part critique. It is part narrative. It's an interesting kind of breakdown of those three films in a, in a really kind of viewer friendly way. That's really engaging. And um, my uh, my newest novel is My Vanishing Twin, out now from Rare Bird Books. And my first book is Sutterfeld, You're Not a Hero, also out from Rare Bird Books. 